All right, come on in and grab a seat. We are going to go ahead and get started. And um, uh, uh, truly, you know, thank you to the praise team, to Mike. I got a text from Wayne last night at 10. I got a call from Andy at 11.30. Somewhere in between those times, Mike was notified. Uh, so, that, so seriously, it was, it was not just last minute. It was... It was it was last minute. It was, it was last minute. Yeah, I guess that's the way to describe it. Um, uh, so, man, thanks for stepping up and stepping in. Appreciate that. And then, you know, it, everything changes for everybody else, and so uh, that, that, that was great. So be praying for Wayne. He's sick, um, and, and uh, I, I probably broke some HIPAA laws saying, telling you that, but <laughs> be praying for Wayne nonetheless. Um, but if you have your Bibles with you this morning, I invite you to turn with me to 2 Corinthians chapter 5. We're going to finish out this chapter this morning, and, and then, you know, like Josh mentioned, hopefully next week we'll have a little break. So if, assuming it is Kale's last Sunday, that whole Sunday is going to be devoted to him, and, and um, he'll, you'll be hearing from him, he'll be preaching, and then we'll have the reception afterwards. Again, we're, if it's not his last Sunday, then, you know, things will, things will change. Uh, so be praying about that. He still doesn't have his visa. That's the last thing. Um, and, and so he's, he's been in communication with them, and, and they keep assuring him that it's not going to be any problem, but he doesn't have it in hand yet, so um, that's kind of the, the hold up there. But, but that will be fun if we're able to, able to have that. But, you know, as you've heard a couple times uh, already this morning, I think, you know, we got another reminder this week that 2020 is going to 2020. You know, for those of you who are unaware, we had a little election this past Tuesday, and you know, you'd think as a country that, you know, 244 years in, into this thing, we'd kind of know how to run those by now, but <laughs> appears to still be a struggle. You know, maybe we have a president-elect, maybe we don't. You know, I think votes are still being mailed in, so how can you really know? <laughs> that was a joke. Don't be offended. <laughs> I mean, sometimes you have to be able to joke about these things to keep your sanity. Uh, but, but the truth is, you know, much of, of what we're seeing in our world today is actually quite sad and not funny. Uh, we are a divided country. Even worse than that, in many ways, we're a divided church. I don't, not this local church individually, but the church universally. And we're divided over things like politics and viruses and masks, things that ultimately shouldn't get in the way of our unity, but it does and it, and it has. And that, that happens for a lot of reasons. But at least one of the reasons, I believe, is, 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 that, is that it boils down to perspective. And it boils down to how we view a certain thing or what we choose to focus on. Because I don't, I don't want to speak for you, but I, I know for me, and I, and I think it's true for, for some of us, if not many of us, I think it's very easy to default to the negative. And so we see the negative aspects of life, the negative aspects of what could be, so what bad thing could happen if the wrong person becomes president, or if I get the virus, or if you don't wear a mask? And we focus on the negative and for, forget to consider what positive things God might be doing in the midst of all of it, based on the positive things that God has already done in your life and in the world around you. I mean, he, he has a decent track record. I, th I think he's proven trustworthy. And that's kind of what God does here at the, at the end of 2 Corinthians chapter 5. He focuses our perspective on the positive. And the most important thing in life, which is reconciliation with him. Amen. And he reminds us that an answer for all the division and all the negativity, it's available to us. And for those of us that have already accepted it, it's in us. You see, God never leaves us to dwell in those negative spaces. He always provides the right perspective to balance the tough issues that we have to deal with. And so that's even true as, as you look at the whole of 2 Corinthians chapter 5. The theme of this chapter, if you've been listening in or if you've been here over the past few weeks, is judgment. And we've seen the focus on the judgment seat of, of Christ. And we've talked about it and, and, and we see there how it's called the terror of the Lord. And we have to talk about that because it's in the Bible. And we don't get to just skip the things we don't like. 
But we can tend to allow that to focus us on the negative. And God knows that, so, so he doesn't leave us there. He brings balance. So today we're going to talk about reconciliation as the balance to judgment. As we consider how God has reconciled us and given to us this ministry of reconciliation. So let's look at it together, 2 Corinthians chapter 5. We're going to be focused on verses 18 through 21, but we're going to start our reading in verse 17. 2 Corinthians 5, verse 17, the Bible says, Therefore, if any man be in Christ, he's a new creature. Old things are passed away, behold, all things are become new. And all things are of God, who hath reconciled us to himself by Jesus Christ, and hath given to us the ministry of reconciliation. To wit, that God was in Christ, reconciling the world unto himself, not imputing their trespasses unto them, and hath committed unto us the word of reconciliation. Now then, we are ambassadors for Christ, as though God did beseech you by us. We pray you in Christ's stead, be ye reconciled to God. For he hath made him to be sin for us who knew no sin, that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. Let's go to the Lord in prayer and ask him to direct our study uh, this morning. Dear Heavenly Father, uh, we do love you. We're so thankful uh, that we've been reconciled to you, those of us that have, and, and those that haven't, Lord, the opportunity is there for them. And you've given to us this ministry, uh, Lord, so I pray that, that you challenge us this morning to live it out in the way you intend for us and the purpose that you've given to us. And so, Lord, I pray that we all examine our, our hearts and our lives this morning and, and are, are not only challenged but yet encouraged uh, by what you've done and what you've made possible through your Son. Lord, we, we do love you. We're so grateful to be here. We do pray for those that aren't, we, Wayne and the others that are sick and and so we lift them up to you, and, and I pray, Lord, that you would uh, just heal their bodies. And, and we know it's, uh, it's an interesting time, and, and I think we're going to continue to see the virus uh, work its way through not only our community, but um, even those that we love. And, and so, Lord, we pray for that now, and, and I pray that you would just uh, uh, maintain our peace and, and knowing that you're in control uh, through the midst of it. Lord, I pray that everything is, that is said today is true to your word. I pray it's honoring and glorifying to you. We love you. We ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen. So I think it's obvious that as we end this chapter with these few verses, that, that the theme is quite clear, and it, it, that theme is reconciliation. We see a form of the word five times, and it's the clear focus uh, as, as, as God ends this chapter. And again, one of the reasons why God does this is to bring balance to the earlier focus on judgment, because if you can shift your focus to the positive aspect of reconciliation with God, then you don't have to worry about the negative aspects of judgment. If you take to heart how God has reconciled you and place your perspective and your energy around living out the ministry of reconciliation that you've been given, then you're not going to have to worry about the judgment seat of Christ. That's going to take care of itself. So this balancing perspective is important. But to be able to, to fully comprehend all that God has done and all that God wants to do in us, we have to understand the term, this term of reconciliation. The term itself means to bring two disputing parties together. And in its biblical context, those parties are God and man. But it's not just salvation. It's not the same as salvation. Biblical reconciliation goes a step further. It's more than having our, our sins forgiving, forgiven and divine justice being satisfied. Biblical reconciliation involves a changed relationship. That's, that's why we started in verse 17. If any man be in Christ, he's a new creature. There's something new that God did, and we don't have the time uh, to go through all of it, but it, it involves us moving from the state of a sinner to that of a son. We become a son of God. And so, and I think this is on your outline sheet, but at the point we are reconciled to God, our relationship status has changed completely as we become a son of God. And that is an amazing, amazing thing. And again, it ought to give us perspective to deal with everything we deal with in this life. We need to come at it from the perspective of a child of God. And proper perspective, it should give us that proper perspective to live out our life to the glory of God. The Apostle John puts it this way in 1 John 3, 1. Behold what manner of love the Father hath bestowed upon us, that we should be called the sons of God. Therefore the world knoweth us not, because it knew him not. 
Can you even grasp it? Behold what manner of love the Father hath bestowed upon us. What manner of love is this? It's incredible, but it's a love that reached out to us when we were at our worst. Romans 5, 8 says, But God commendeth his love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. And that paved the way for reconciliation to occur. And again, it's a love that reached out to us, not the other way around. And that brings us to our, our first point of study this morning, and that's the source of reconciliation. The source of reconciliation. And of course, the source is God. Look back at 2 Corinthians 5, starting at verse 17 again. Therefore, if any man be in Christ, he is a new creature. Old things are passed away. Behold, all things are become new. And all things are of God, who hath reconciled us to himself by Jesus Christ. And has given to us the ministry of reconciliation, to wit that God was in Christ, reconciling the world unto himself, not imputing their trespasses unto them, and hath committed unto us the word of reconciliation. You see, our reconciliation with God does not originate with us. There is no method that man has created that allows him to work his way back to God. Although that's exactly what religion tries to do. Religion, adeptly used by the devil, is exactly that. Man's own attempt to work his way to God. That's all religion is. That's why biblical Christianity isn't based in religion. It's based in relationship. A relationship through reconciliation that begins with God. We do not have to work our way to Him. He worked His way to us. He's the source. We just have to accept it. And He wanted reconciliation with us so badly that He sent His own Son, Jesus Christ, to bring it about. You see, Jesus was 100% man, so he understood man's weaknesses and frailties, but he was also 100% God, so he understood God's holiness and righteousness. So he's the only one who could do it. There's a story of a man and his son who had a broken relationship to the point that they wouldn't even talk to each other, and this went on for years. And one day, the man's wife, the, the, the son's mother, she got sick, and she ends up in the hospital, and it turns out they can't do anything for her, so she progresses to the point of her death. So they call in the immediate family, and it's just, it's just her, her husband, and their, and their son. You know, and in her dying breath, she took the, the hand of her husband on one side, and she took the hand of her son on the other side, and, then, and she brought them together onto her bosom as she died. And, in of, and of course, in that moment, the father and son realized that they were all that they had. And they restored their relationship. And it's a fictitious story, and yet it's probably played out before in one form or another in hospital rooms across the world. But more than that, it's a picture of what Jesus Christ did for us. While on the cross, he reached out to God the Father with one hand. And he reached out to us with the other hand. And he brought himself together in himself at his death. Amen. Ephesians 2, verses 13 through 16 puts it this way, But now in Christ Jesus, ye who sometimes were far off, are made nigh by the blood of Christ. For he is our peace, who hath made both one, and hath broken down the middle wall of partition between us, having abolished in his flesh the enmity, even the law of commandments contained in ordinances, for to make in himself of twain one new man, so making peace, and that he might reconcile both God in one body by the cross, having slain the enmity thereby. That's what Jesus did for us on the cross. And the only problem with that hospital illustration is in that illustration, the, the, the father in that story is complicit in the wrongdoing. Well, God the Father was not. And he did not grab his son's hand begrudgingly. He sent his son so that he would have the opportunity to grab his hand and reconcile with us. That's what verse 18 says. All things are of God who hath reconciled us to himself by Jesus Christ. Behold what manner of love the Father hath bestowed upon us. 
You know, we often talk about how Jesus Christ's sufferings removed the wrath of God from those who accept his sacrifice. And that saying is absolutely true. That's absolutely what he did. But, but I think when we focus on that, it conveys the wrong message sometimes. Again, we have to consider perspective. Because I think when we look at it from the negative, it, it conveys this idea of a vengeful and angry God. And that the death of Jesus Christ, his son, was, was necessary to pacify the anger of God the Father. And the substitution made on Calvary, you have to understand that that was by God. Because the fact is, God was love before Jesus died. He's always been love. He's always been full of grace and truth toward his people. And the substitution made on Calvary was a substitution provided by God's love. You see, the Lord himself gave his own son to die as a manifestation of the love, as well as a vindication of justice. But it wasn't only that. God was in Christ. Christ was in God. God came on earth to reconcile men. God made the atonement for us. God was not made to love us by the death of his son. But his son died because God loved us. And had mercy on us. For God so loved the world that he gave. Romans 5.10 says, For if when we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more being reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. And we need to look at the cross in that light. It is by that bloody sweat, that crown of thorns, that shame and suffering, it is by those five dear wounds, those agonies he endured, that God has removed all hindrance to your reconciliation with him. God himself has given to you his son, and he suffered in his son that you might be reconciled to him. It was not Jesus a stranger who hung there to gratify the Father's vengeance. God forbid. It was God himself and one of his divine persons who bore the penalty. So I want to be very clear on the source of reconciliation this morning. James 1.17 says, Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, and cometh down from the Father of lights, with whom is no variableness, neither shadow of turning. Ephesians 2, 8 and 9, speaking of good and perfect gifts, says, for by grace ye saved through faith, and that not of yourself, it is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. Colossians 1, verses 19 through 22, says, for it pleased the Father that in him should all fullness dwell, and having made peace through the blood of his cross, by him to reconcile all things unto himself. By him, I say, whether they be things in earth or things in heaven, and you that were sometime alienated and enemies in your mind by wicked works, yet now hath he reconciled in the body of his flesh through death to present you holy and unblameable and unprovable in his sight. God is the source of reconciliation. Because that doesn't mean he forces it upon you. It just means he has offered his son as the way to get to him. Not a way, the way. That's what John 14, 6 says, right? Jesus saith unto them, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man cometh unto the Father but by me. You see, it was achieved at Christ's expense. And the reason why is because Christ was the only sacrifice who could satisfy the holiness of God. Christ is the only mediator who could stand between God and man. Christ is the only way. Apart from him, there is no other way. He's the only one whose whose name there is in salvation. He's the only one who could reconcile God to man, who could break down that middle wall of partition. Neither is there salvation in any other, for there is none other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. Acts 4.12. But like I said, you have to choose. Reconciliation is available, but it's not automatic. That's why we've been given the ministry of reconciliation. And that brings us to our second point, which is the stewardship of reconciliation. Because after you have been reconciled to God, you've been given a ministry to help others understand and be reconciled to God as well. Look at verse 18 again. 
And all things are of God, who hath reconciled us to, by, to himself by Jesus Christ, and hath given to us the ministry of reconciliation. To wit, which just means that is to say, or namely, it's just a further description, to wit, that God was in Christ, reconciling the world unto himself, not imputing their trespasses unto them, and hath committed unto us the word of reconciliation. Now then, we are ambassadors for Christ. As though God did beseech you by us, we pray you in Christ's stead, be ye reconciled to God. Amen. And there are three things I want to focus on in this section, in this, in this point, to help you understand the full stewardship that we've been given. And those three things are the ministry of reconciliation, the word of reconciliation, and then being ambassadors for Christ. I want to break those down one at a time. And the, the, so the first aspect of this stewardship is our responsibility. Our responsibility. And the, the responsibility is the ministry. It's been given to us. Those of us that are saved, we've been given this ministry of, of reconciliation so that we can give it to others. And all it is, is very simple. This message is very, very simple because this is a simple topic that God, God gives us. But all it is is explaining to people that God in Christ has made a way to man. He defines it in verse 19. Again, that's what to wit means. I've given you the ministry of reconciliation. Here's what I mean by that. And, and he explains it then in verse 19. So if they will just accept Christ, he will not impute or count, attribute. It's, a, it's, a, it's an accounting term. He will not impute or count or attribute their sins as their own. He will accept the sacrifice of Christ on their behalf, and he will not hold them guilty. They will no longer be condemned. That's what Roman 8.1 says. There is therefore now no condemnation to them which are in Christ Jesus, who walk not after the flesh, but after the Spirit. And there's a great illustration of this truth in the letter that Paul wrote to his friend Philemon. So many of you know the story, but in case you don't, this short one-chapter book of Philemon is, is, is basically about Philemon's slave Onesimus, who had stolen from him. He had stolen from his master. He had fled to Rome, and, and, and because of those crimes, he, he could have been crucified. But in the providence of God, Onesimus had met Paul somewhere down the line, and Paul had led him to the Lord. And so Paul writes this epistle to Philemon to encourage Philemon to forgive Onesimus and to receive him back home. And look at what Paul says in verses 17 and 18 of, of Philemon. He's, he's talking to Philemon. He says, if, if thou count me therefore a partner, receive him, Onesimus, as myself. If he hath wronged thee or oweth thee aught, put that on mine account. Paul was willing to, to pay the bill, so to speak, so that Philemon and Onesimus could be reconciled. That's amputation. That's the message that we share so of course, is the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ. But listen, the good news, it doesn't come by means of angels. It's not announced from heaven by loud, impersonal voices. It doesn't even come by pouring over church history writings from the past. In every generation, it is delivered by living, breathing men and women who speak from their own experience. That's the responsibility that we've been given. And listen, it's time to take that responsibility seriously. It's time to tell people the truth, which is the second aspect of our stewardship, the word of reconciliation. So we've been given the ministry to tell others that, that God, through Jesus, made a way to him. But he's given us the second aspect. He's given us the word of re reconciliation. That is our resource. You see, it's one thing to live of the gospel. You know, we, of course, need to do that. But we have a word, too. That means you've got to speak. And so don't, don't just try to cop out by saying, well, yeah, I, I, mean, I, I, I want to I witness to them, but I just want them to see it in me. Yeah, okay, they should absolutely see it in you. But you've got to open your mouth, too. You've been, what, you know what's been, you've been given a ministry of reconciliation. You know what's been committed to you? A word of reconciliation. That means a message. 
that you have to speak out, that you have to give out. Colossians 4, verses 3 through 4 says, With all praying also for us that God would open unto us a door of utterance to speak the mystery of Christ, for which I am also in bonds, that I might make it manifest as I ought to speak. You've been given a word to speak. You've been given a word of reconciliation, and that is this word through your words. The resource of God's word is something we have to tell others about. We need to preach. Romans 10, 14. These are verses that we all know. How then shall they call on him in whom they've not believed? And how shall they believe in him in whom they've not heard? And how shall they hear without a preacher? And we get to preach what God calls in 1 Timothy 1, 11, The glorious gospel of the blessed God. Because it's about reconciliation to God. I mean, how good is that? We've been given the responsibility and the resource to share and preach a glorious gospel. The sad thing is, we act like it's a second-rate gospel. Because we don't share it like we should. Why? It's glorious. It's the only truly good news. But listen, this is the only good news we have. It's the only good news to share. Whoever ends up as our next president, either way, that's not good news. Not like this. They, don't, they can't do this. So don't keep it to yourself. Don't be ashamed of the gospel of Christ. Can you get with Paul when he says in 1 Corinthians 9, 16, For though I preach the gospel, I have nothing to glory of for necessity is laid upon me yea woe is unto me if I preach not the gospel see Paul he had a glorious gospel and he had in his heart he had hid the word of reconciliation the word of God in his heart and he had to share it with others do you listen we all know this we live in a world where people are dying and they're going to hell every day we know that we talk about it we don't like even though we know it and even though we'll talk about it we don't really like to acknowledge it because it's not a great thought but if the bible is true then what i just said is fact i mean you know in a crowd this size there's probably someone in here that doesn't know jesus christ as a personal savior and and if that's you then then what the bible says that you're desti- destined to spend an eternity in hell separated from god if you don't accept Jesus Christ as your Savior, as a substitute for your sins. And, 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 and listen, I say that not trying to frighten you, I promise. But if that's the situation you're in, can I tell you that you have something to be frightened about? And, and can I implore you to, to listen to what God's trying to tell you today? And, and to accept him as the only substitute available for eternal life? He loves you. He wants to save you. And he gave you his only begotten son. He wants to be reconciled to you today. But if you've already accepted that gift of salvation, then you need to pass it on. There are people out there who do not know what the word of God says about them and says about their eternal destiny. But you have the answer. The resource is in you, and it's in me. So don't keep it to yourself. Put Romans 10, 14 to work in your life and don't miss the opportunities that God gives you. And then do it boldly because you have been given the authority. Which brings us to the third aspect of our stewardship and that's recognition. You have been recognized in an official capacity for the Lord. You are, are an ambassador not, and not just any ambassador, an ambassador for Christ. And like I said, that means you've been given authority so that you can fulfill that responsibility. We know what an ambassador is in relation to our government. They are the official spokesman for a sovereign power in a foreign state. That's what an ambassador is. Their word is backed up by the power that sent them out as long as the word of the ambassador truly represents the mind and the will of the sending state. So Christians everywhere are authorized 
recognized spokesmen for God. We've been given a, a title and a position that comes with authority and recognition. And we were recognized and we were given the authority in the Great Commission. So if you have any questions about that, see Matthew 28, verses 18 through 20. We don't have time to go there, but you can look it up on your own. You've been given authority, you've been recognized in an official capacity. And we've been given our assignment on this earth. But this earth is not our home. Peter says we are strangers and pilgrims down here. 1 Peter 2.11 Dearly beloved, I beseech you as strangers and pilgrims, abstain from fleshly lusts which war against the soul. And in Philippians 3.20, Paul said, For our conversation, and in this context it means citizenship, can also be translated that way, for our conversation or our citizenship is in heaven. From whence also we look for the Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. And since our citizenship is now in heaven, at the point we, we accept Christ as our substitute, we get a new, it was one of the things we get when we are reconciled to God, we get a new citizenship. And we're made citizens of heaven. And that means we become strangers and pilgrims down here. And then we've been made ambassadors. That doesn't just take us to our home. He leaves us here and gives us the position of an ambassador to carry forth the work of the Lord down here. That means our full allegiance is to be to our home country. I mean, listen. If you're of age and registered, I hope you voted last Tuesday. I did, and the guy I voted for, I, I really wanted and, and still do want him to win. But if I care more about that than I do seeing Jesus getting his ultimate due and him sitting on the throne ruling and reigning in the millennium, if I care more about this election than him ruling, then I've messed up somewhere along the way. Because my ultimate allegiance isn't here. And I hate to break this to some of you, but our government certainly does not uphold the Bible as the source of truth or biblical morality as a source of what is right. And that is true of both Democrats and Republicans. We do not have a Christian government. This is not, and, and listen to me, this is not a Christian nation. It has had some Christian influence through the years, which it is quickly losing. But it is not a Christian nation because there is no such thing as a Christian nation. There are Christian people. There are no Christian nations. When it comes to nations, there's Israel and everyone else. So vote, participate, care, but keep your primary allegiance where it belongs, understanding the responsibility you've been given. I mean, just ask yourself honestly, how many of you have hindered your ability to perform the ministry of reconciliation that you've been given by God, all because of how political you've been on Facebook? Where is your true allegiance? Where is your true home? Have your feelings, vote, all that. But listen, that's not your responsibility. If you are a son of God, your responsibility is the ministry of reconciliation. Anything you do to hinder your ability to perform that responsibility, shame on you. Remember the story of Jesus in John chapter 4 when he's talking to the Samaritan woman at Jacob's well? And he has this great conversation with her telling her that he has and he is everlasting water. And that whosoever drinks of that water that he gives will never thirst again. And with that in mind, when his disciples come back to meet him in verse 31, he has this follow-up conversation with them. And look at what he says, starting in verse 31. In the meanwhile, his disciples prayed to him, saying, Master, eat. He hadn't eaten all day. They knew this. They went and got food and came back. But he said unto them, I have meat to eat that ye know, you know not of. Therefore said the disciples one to another, Has any man brought him ought to eat? And it's like... He told us to go get food. I, did somebody else bring him food? Jesus saith unto them, My meat is to do the will of him that sent me. You see, Jesus was hungry. He hadn't eaten. And he was weary. And physically, he needed food and rest. 
but it wasn't that food or rest that satisfied him. When he reflected back on what had happened with that woman, that's where he received true satisfaction. The things of the world didn't satisfy him at that point. It was God's will for his life. It was his participation in the ministry of reconciliation. That's what satisfied him. He wasn't caught up in in physical and temporal satisfaction. But we are. We get caught up in the things of the world. Because we don't understand or acknowledge our responsibility and our official recognition and position in Christ. So we just go about feeding our flesh instead, instead of living for him. Because even though John, in his epistle, in his first epistle, tells us not to love the world, neither the things that are in the world, we still do. Ambassadors love their country. And it's okay to love the people of the other country, but don't fall in love with the country itself. It's not where your allegiance lies. Do your job. Preach the word. And then preach it passionately. The text tells us very plainly it is to be delivered by beseeching men and praying or begging men. So listen, that means to inform the intellect is not the sole work. We're to proclaim, but we're to do far more. We are to beseech and to pray. The text goes on to say that we're to beseech men as though God did beseech them. Well, how did God beseech men? There are plenty of examples in Scripture, but I love his beseeching in Isaiah 1.18. He said, come now, and let us reason together, saith the Lord. Though your sins be as scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. Though they be red like crimson, they shall be as wool. Man, the Lord is smooth. Come now. Let us reason together. Let's sit down and have a little talk. Let's talk through this. And your sins, man, that's a dark stain. I can make them clean. That's a cool cat right there. I'm just telling you, man. And his son got it from him too because we know the style in which Jesus pleaded the love of God. You can see it in his parable of the prodigal son in Luke 15 verse 20. It says, And he arose and came to his father, but when he was yet a great way off, his father, a picture of God the Father, saw him, had compassion, and ran and fell on his neck and kissed him. And what an eloquent, eloquent discourse on the abounding mercy of God the Father. Jesus was telling them how how willingly God receives the penitent, how gladly he puts away every sin. Then listen to how Jesus implored man to be reconciled in, in such loving words as these. Come unto me, all ye that labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. It's Matthew 11, verse 28. And what an encouragement it should be when he said, Him that cometh to me, I will in no wise cast out. John 6, 37. I don't think there was ever such a pleader as Jesus. Even to his last expiring cry of it is finished. Which was just another way of saying, I've done everything that's needed to be done. Be ye reconciled to God. And it's so amazing because he's the one that is begging and he's the one that's convincing and lovingly calling and yet he was the source of reconciliation. He was the one that loved first. He was the one that suffered (coughs) and died for us. He's done it all. And that brings us to our last point, which is the splendor of reconciliation. The splendor of reconciliation. I I want you to see just how great of a deal this is. Look at verse 21. For he hath made him to be sin for us who knew no sin, that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. He was made sin so that we could be made righteous. That's a pretty good deal. And I don't know if you can fully comprehend the depths of that. I'm not sure that I can, but it's incredible. That's the splendor of reconciliation, that he would do that for you and me. 
And that splendor ought to make you love him more. And take your responsibility of the ministry and the word of being an ambassador, it ought to make you take that more seriously. But you need to consider what happened when he became sin. Because not only did, did Christ bear our sins on the cross so that we should live under righteousness, 1 Peter 2.24 tells us that, but God actually made the Lord to be sin. Uh, those are very specific words. And so closely was Christ identified with sin on the cross that he likens himself to Satan in John 3.14. And we'll get there, but, but let, me, let me take you on the path to, to lead you there, so follow me for a second. We know that the, the serpent in the Bible, this is where John 3.14 is going to take us to, but we know the serpent in the Bible is consistently associated with sin and Satan. Let me take John 3.1 as an example. Now the serpent was more subtle than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. And he said unto the woman, Yea, as God said, shall not, uh, sh- ye, shall not eat, sh- ye shall not eat of, the, of every tree of the garden. And while not explicitly stated in that verse, we, we know that serpent to be Satan. That was who deceived Eve. And then you might remember in our study out of the book of Numbers, we saw the story in Numbers 21 where the Israelites, they had complained, you know, one too many times. And God sends serpents to bite them and, and kill them. In Numbers 21, verse 7, the Bible says, Therefore the people came to Moses and said, We have sinned. For we have spoken against the Lord and against thee. Pray unto the Lord that he take away the serpents from us. And Moses prayed for the people. And the Lord said unto Moses, Make thee a fiery serpent and set it upon a pole. And it shall come to pass that every one that is bitten, when he looketh upon it, shall live. And Moses made a serpent of brass, and he put it on a pole, and it came to pass that if the serpent had bitten any man, when he beheld the serpent of brass, he lived. And so the, the brass serpent, it, God tells him, make this, this image, this the, uh, brass of a serpent on a pole. And, and if, if they got bit by the snake, they just had to look to that, and they would be healed. It was a symbol by which they needed to live. And they had to look to that cross. Or that pole. Which brings us to John 3, 14. It says, And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, what we just read about, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up. And and there's the picture. As Christ was on that cross, He became that serpent. He became sin. So that we could be saved. So that we could be made righteous. We just have to look to Him. Isaiah 45, 22, Look unto me, and be ye saved, all the ends of the earth. For I am God, and there is none else. But listen, on the cross, Christ not only suffered humiliation, shame, and agony, but God turned Him into a sin offering. He became sin personified. And I'm sure as, it, as difficult as it was, the wrath of God was poured out on him. As it will be poured out on Satan. Jesus paid for every sin that has ever been committed as our substitute. Christ for the criminal. The prophetic passage of Isaiah 53 probably describes it best, starting at verse 3. We read, he's despised and rejected of men, a man of sorrows, and acquainted with grief. And we hid, as it were, our faces from him. He was despised, and we esteemed him not. Surely he hath borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we did esteem him stricken, smitten of God, and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace was upon him, and with his stripes we are healed. And this is a very somber passage really where we hear so much of about Christ's suffering but then at the end we hear with his stripes we are healed that's the splendor what a great seven words those are we're healed and, and for those of us who have accepted him in faith we're healed because he was the substitute and we can even make this personal if you look at it. I don't, it's probably not even up there. But verse 6 of Isaiah 53 says, All we like sheep have gone astray. We've turned everyone his own way. 
That means we need a substitute. I mean, this, of course, is, is the very heart of the gospel, the ministry of reconciliation. That Jesus took our place. God made a way to us through Jesus. And I briefly mentioned 1 Peter 2.24 a second ago. But look at the full passage, starting in verse 21. For even hereunto were ye called, because Christ also suffered for us, leaving us an example that we should follow his steps. Who did no sin, neither was guile found in his mouth, who when he was reviled, reviled not again. When he suffered, he threatened not, but committed himself to him that judgeth righteously. Verse 24, who his own self bare our sins in his own body on the tree, that we being dead to sin should live unto righteousness, by whose stripes ye were healed. For ye were as a sheep going astray, but are now returned unto the shepherd and bishop of your souls. You see, as the worthy substitute, Jesus took our sins and paid the price for them. You see, sin is a disease that has infiltrated and afflicted the entire human race, everyone. And, and this really spells for us what we're really like, because I think, you know, most of us think of ourselves as decent people. Yeah. You know, maybe even good people. And, you know, I mean, we're not perfect, but there's certainly worse folks than us. And, you know, while that's probably true, when you think about it in this context and you come to understand the substitutionary necessity of Jesus' death for you too, then you can begin to grasp the evil in our hearts. And we see that sin is a disease. It's infiltrated our whole lives. So Isaiah 53.5 and 1 Peter 2.24 come as the best of news. He was wounded for our transgressions. The bruising that he felt was the chastisement that we deserve, but it was laid upon him. And the stripes that Jesus endured is for our healing. And of course, the stripes refer to the beatings of Jesus at the crucifixion. But listen, they represent so much more than that. Notice the wording again of 1 Peter 2.24. Who his own self bear our sins in his own body on the tree. That we being dead to sin should live unto righteousness by whose stripes ye are healed. The Bible says he bare our sins in his own body on the tree. And, and by our sins being placed on him and in him. As we ask him to be our substitute, that's how we are healed. He paid for all of our sins. And each sin we commit was a stripe to his body. He took every sin in his own body. Can you imagine that? The sinless Son of God being beaten by sin after sin after sin after sin. And while that should trouble your soul, I hope it makes you incredibly thankful for the only worthy substitute that was and is available for your salvation. Because with his stripes, we are healed. What a gift. It's a gift that keeps on giving, man. What a gift giver God is. Romans 8, 32, He that spared not his own son, but delivered him up for us all, how shall he not with him also freely give us all things? We have an amazing God who is willing to deliver himself up because a substitute had to be made. And as he was made sins, and he endured each and every one of our sins in his body, we were made righteous. That's the splendor of reconciliation. If you are in Christ, when God looks at you, he now sees Jesus. He sees righteousness. He sees holiness. He sees perfection. All because Jesus Christ, the King of heaven, became a poor, despised, persecuted, and slandered man of sorrows. Man, I, don't even, I don't even know what else to say. I love him for it. I, I desire to praise him because of it, but I can't pretend to fully understand it. All I can do is, is, is call him the name that he's given in Isaiah 9-6 and say he's wonderful. And I'll venture to say that all the wonders you have ever seen 
pale in comparison to the wonderfulness of Christ. I hope you see it that way. And his wonderfulness shined no brighter than when he was suffering his darkest day. When he became sin for us. Who else would be willing to do that? Let me tell you, that man of sorrows sure makes a marvelous Savior. And man, I, I hope he's a marvelous Savior to you. Because if he is your Savior, it should motivate you. It should motivate you to dev devote yourself to him more than you ever have before. I want to encourage you to give your life to him like you never have before. Because that's what our lives ought to be about. Jesus gave his all for us. We just need to return the favor. Take the ministry of reconciliation seriously. But if you're not a Christian, if you've never accepted the substitute offering of Jesus Christ for yourself as a payment for your sins, then I want to motivate you too. And I want to motivate and persuade you to make him your personal Savior today. Because he is a wonderful Savior to all. But is he a wonderful Savior to you? Romans 3.22 says, Even the righteousness of God, which is by faith of Jesus Christ, unto all and upon all them that believe. You see, his offer of salvation is unto all, so it's available to everyone, but it's only upon all them that believe. So there's no such thing as limited atonement, but there is limited salvation. God's offer of salvation is for everyone, but you don't get it if you don't accept it. And what that means is God's salvation is only limited by one thing and one thing alone. Revelation 22 says, And the Spirit and the bride say, Come. And let him that heareth say, Come. And let him that is a thirst come. And whosoever will, let him take the water of life freely. Salvation is only limited by one thing, and that's your unwillingness to take it. To take the water of life and drink it freely without attempting to provide anything in addition to his substitution. So if you haven't done so, drink freely today. And if you do that, if you put your trust in him today, you will come to understand just how wonderful of a Savior that he is and what a splendor that reconciliation is. Be ye reconciled to God today. But like I said, if you are, and that's most of you in here, I know that. Man, let's get to work. We've been given a ministry. We've been given a word. We have the authority as Christ's ambassador. You know, like Brett told us at the Certainty Conference, it just doesn't matter. The election really doesn't matter. This does. This is really all that matters. I mean, listen, I, I get some trouble here, but whatever. I'm coming over. You know, I mean, so we have these popular phrases today, black lives matter and all lives matter. And, and I, get, I get the sentiment of, of all of it. I, I do, I promise. But you know, the truth is one life matters. Christ's life because when we get in him we're supposed to live his life through us our life doesn't matter his life matters so let's take that life seriously and live ours for him